This is the English Heritage Podcast. Thanks for being with us again for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe, and if you're new, a warm welcome. Join us for new episodes every Thursday. Now, today we uncover the extraordinary life of Margaret Cavendish. Margaret lived at Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire and was a duchess, philosopher, poet, playwright, and even a science fiction pioneer. And 400 years on since her birth, we're joined by senior properties historian Dr. Megan Leyland to discuss Margaret's life and achievements. Hi, great to be here. Before we get into the detail of Margaret Cavendish's life, broadly speaking, how would you say why she is important? How would you summarise Margaret's greatest achievements? It's really hard to summarise Margaret Cavendish. She was extraordinary for a host of reasons and certainly led a really fascinating life. But perhaps her greatest achievements were her extensive literary output. She was a prolific writer in the period, and even more so for a woman, and published on a range of topics and in a range of genres. This included one of the earliest novels in English and earliest works of science fiction. And through her work, she also engaged with contemporary debates in natural philosophy, so sort of science philosophy of today, even if people didn't necessarily engage with her about them. And she became the first woman to attend a meeting of the Royal Society, an all-male sort of scientific club. And these are just a few of her achievements. And as you read the literature of Margaret Cavendish, it is littered with many of her pioneering accomplishments and how she was the first to do so many things. And if anyone's been on the Margaret Cavendish page of the English Heritage website, they'll see her described as probably the most published woman of the 17th century. That's quite some feat. How does she develop this interest in writing? Well, she talks about her earlier life. She wrote a sort of autobiography and she describes her education as, I quote, according to my birth and the nature of my sex. So she didn't really have sort of a formal education per se. She never went to school, but she did also write how she was taught by an ancient decayed gentlewoman who my mother kept for that purpose. And she writes that what she did learn was sort of confined to those accomplishments suitable for women, sort of for virtue. Yet she also describes sort of her fascination with observing and questioning the world around her. And it's something she really cultivated from a young age, encouraged by her reading and conversation with her siblings, in particular her brother. She wrote in her autobiography that she was, and I quote, addicted from childhood to contemplation rather than conversation, and continues that she preferred to write with a pen than to work with a needle, passing my time with harmless fancy so ideas, their company being pleasing, their conversation innocent. And she certainly did write with the pen, and she sort of describes how she was imbued with a poetic and philosophical genius. And she wrote books even before she was 12. She calls these her baby books, 16 volumes written in her baby years, filled with her thoughts, all intermingled. She really fostered this passion for writing and intellectual pursuits throughout her life, and in particular after she left home, where she had a somewhat informal education from court and among the intellectual circle which her first husband cultivated. Let's try to understand this political context in which Margaret was living and and place her historically where was England politically at the time of Margaret's life? This was the reign of King Charles I, wasn't it? So that's already quite a turbulent time. It was. Margaret lived through a period of incredible political upheaval and uncertainty. 
She was born near Colchester in 1623 to the Lucas family. This was several years before King Charles I ascended to the throne, and she would have been 19 at the start of the English Civil Wars in 1642, when King Charles I and Parliament tussled for control of England. This would have been an incredibly scary time for Margaret and her family. They were royalists, so supporters of the king in a parliamentarian town, Colchester, and indeed her family didn't fare all too well. Their home was mobbed and plundered. Later, her brother, Sir Charles Lucas, was executed and her relatives' tombs ransacked by parliamentarian forces. So it was a really challenging time for Margaret. And what happened to Margaret during these uh, English civil wars? Well, as she put it, she had a great desire to become a maid of honour to Queen Henrietta Maria. So that's the wife of Charles I, who in 1643, after a period in Holland, garnering support for her husband, returned to England and the wartime headquarters of Charles I in Oxford. Age 20, and against the backdrop of family concern, you know, this was the first time she'd left home. She had very little life experience. She went to Oxford and became maid of honour. But ultimately, she did not enjoy it. She did not enjoy her time at court and, in fact, begged to come home. Bashful, shy and without the support of her family, she felt sort of ungrounded with no foundation and was really afraid of putting a foot wrong and dishonouring her friends and family. In 1644, Oxford was not really a safe place to be anymore and Henrietta Maria was forced to flee and Margaret went with her and ended up in exile in Paris. While she's in Paris, this is where her life changes doesn't it? Because she's going to get married, isn't she? When was that? Yes, so Margaret married the commander-in-chief of the Northern Royalist Counties, William Cavendish, in 1645. And William had gone into exile himself in 1644, when after initial military success, he suffered a catastrophic defeat at the largest battle of the First Civil War, Master Moore. And he was seen as the greatest traitor to the state, and his property was confiscated, The couple lived together in Paris and then later in Antwerp till the restoration in 1660. And during this time, Margaret really immersed herself in learning and intellectual pursuits under the tutelage of William and his brother Charles. Charles was an accomplished mathematician and a natural philosopher and William a great patron of the arts and science and interested in natural philosophy himself. And around them, they collected a circle which brought Margaret into contact with leading natural philosophers such as Hobbes and Descartes. And even for a time, they leased the fantastical Rubens house. What a wonderful setting. And Margaret really enjoyed this time um, with William as sort of his scholar and describes, I dance a measure with the muses, feast with the sciences or sit and discourse with the arts when with William. Were they um, a good match? Did people appreciate them getting together? Well, I think it's really clear, actually, throughout Margaret's life that they were a great match. William and Margaret seem to have supported each other's endeavours, their intellectual pursuits, their writing. William wrote as well. He um, published works. When they sort of started their courtship, there were a few eyebrows raised. There was a 30-year age gap between the two of them. Different social status. William was one of the Queen's favourites. And monarchs were generally reluctant to lose members of their household upon marriage, so... Margaret would have left the household when married and actually they ended up having a very quiet affair. So yeah, they were a great match but not necessarily seen by all at the time. We associate Margaret today, of course, with Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire. I presume that was William's property? It was, yes. Yes. So when were they able to return to England and take possession of that property and also his other lands? 
Yeah, so it wasn't until the restoration in 1660 when Charles II returned from our exile to resume the throne of England that William and Margaret were able to come back and enjoy those estates again, if not much depleted. And Bolsover was an important part of that, as well as nearby Welbeck Abbey, and the property sort of worked in tandem in many ways. But it is just important to note before we move on, Margaret did actually come back to England prior to 1660 without William. He was too, you know, controversial to come back. And so William's property, as we sort of said, had been confiscated. And his brother Charles and Margaret came back to England in the 1650s, Charles to petition for the return of his brother's estates and his own, and Margaret to ask for an income from William's estates. Women were, you know, apolitical beings. They were victims of their husband's delinquent ways, so they could get some sort of income to support them. And Margaret's petition was unsuccessful, and that was largely because she married after William was in exile. She knew what she was getting into. Charles was, however, more successful. He apologised for his role. He bought back Bolsover and Welbeck, actually saving Bolsover for demolition. And that's going to lead us on. I need to give that bit of context before we get to sort of what we're going to talk about next, her writing career. Yes, exactly. How did Margaret begin to carve out this writing career? As we've heard, Margaret had always written. However, it was not until the 1650s, 1653, most likely when she was there back in England waiting to find out the results of her appeal that we've just talked about, that she published her first book, Poems and Fancies, and afterwards a companion to this, a scientific treatise, Philosophical Fancies. And these contain some of her earliest thoughts on natural philosophy, which would develop and evolve throughout her publications. And her return to England in the 1660s, though she'd been writing sort of prior to this, prior to the Restoration, published a few works and was working on a few others, this return to England in the 1660s was a period where she really delved into the literature around her works and around her theories on natural philosophy. She read and she learned and she updated her vocabulary so she could articulate her views more easily in contemporary debates of time. And just to give you an example of the extent of this reading, there is a bill for books she bought from London in 1644 for 39, just over £39, £39, 14 shillings. And it's been argued that this would have purchased her something like 100 or 200 volumes. And you really see the evidence of this in her writing. Depending on how you count them, Margaret tended to edit and republish her works. So, you know, how many she did depends how you count them. Some of the most recent scholarship has identified something like 26 works, with over a dozen of these being original works. And to put this into context, it has been argued that almost 650 books in English were published by women between sort of 1640 and 1700, so the periods when Margaret was active. And when you think about that, Margaret contributed a lot. Yeah, she bought a lot as well. Um, she did. <laughs> she was really filling her head with knowledge and then obviously writing her own material. You've mentioned some of the things that she started to write, these poetic works, and she was also philosophising. Um, what other things was she involved in with the pen? Gosh, it's what didn't she write is the big question. Margaret's interests were so extensive and far ranging. And she wrote in pretty much every genre you can think of. She experimented with the different vehicles to expand upon her view of the world and nature and how it all worked. And this included, as we had poetry, she also wrote plays, science fiction, orations, essays, scientific treaties, letters, biography, autobiography. I mean, it's, it's, it's expansive. 
a large proportion of these, as we've had sort of addressed natural philosophy or sort of the science of the time. And Margaret was particularly concerned with refining her theory of matter, which argued that it was self-moving and intelligent. She also critiques contemporary philosophers, as well as putting forward her own original ideas, in some instances actually anticipating ideas which would not be put forward by philosophers until later. And she also wrote on lots of different subjects. So it's not just natural philosophy. She wrote on sort of political and social philosophy. Gender has been thought about a lot within her works and has been taken up in more recent scholarship on how her views worked. She wrote about things like animal cruelty, imagination. She also wrote about war and government, obviously a preoccupation of the time. She's living in the civil war years, so you can imagine that would have played upon her thoughts. So really, she wrote about so many things through so many different vehicles. And science fiction is the one thing that uh, you wouldn't expect from a lady of this period. But we're calling it science fiction, aren't we? And how do we recognise it as such? Is it a novel or a short story? Yeah, it's so Margaret's work, which is generally heritage as science fiction, is called The Description of a New World Called the Blazing World. And it has been credited by some of, sort of the earliest works of science fiction and one of the earliest examples of a novel in English and of the first known science fiction to be written and published by a woman. And it's really a forerunner of sort of later works. It included critiques of some of the most up to date scientific ideas of the time. So you get that science but through dialogues in this sort of incredible alternative fictional parallel world where there exists half animal, half men creatures and this absolutely powerful empress who discusses that science with them and discusses the benefits and disadvantages of it, what she believes works and doesn't work. And this really is the first fictional portrayal of woman and this sort of new science, which is really coming about in the 17th century. So hence sort of sci-fi, the exploration of the potential of science through fiction. But actually, it's really hard to define what the blazing world was. And Margaret herself even tries to explore what that genre was. She wrote a note to the reader before the work, and she describes it as, I chose such a fiction as would be agreeable to the subject I treated of in the former parts. It is a description of a new world, a world of my own creating, which I call the blazing world. The first part whereof is romantical, the second part philosophical, and the third is merely fancy, or as I may call it, fantastical. And, you know, blazing world is really hard to define. She mixes and plays with genre. And we see this elsewhere in her publications. And it's worth noting that it was also meant to be read in tandem with one of her more traditionally presented scientific works. They were supposed to support each other. So The Blazing World was initially published as an appendix to her more conventional work of natural philosophy, Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy in 1666. It sounds like it's quite hard to read and that you've also almost got to hold two books in both hands whilst you're reading it and referring to one and then looking at the other. Um, Is it quite hard to sort of digest if someone wanted to pick it up and have a go? I would really recommend giving it a go. And actually, it's really quite readily available now. Um, You can find it online. You can, it's reprinted now with great introductions, which give you the context in which to read The Blazing World. And regardless of everything else, it is a really fantastic story. It's got all the great (laughs) parts. It's got a beautiful young woman being transported to another world through the North Pole. These incredible creatures, 
powerful empress discussing philosophy, science and religion, immaterial spirits. We go into the spirit world. Margaret Cavendish even makes an appearance herself. Mm. Yeah, very meta. And a great war at the end where the empress goes and saves her native world. I mean, it's it's really worth, worth a read. So I'd encourage our listeners to give it a go. Mm. But is there also this feminist subtext to The Blazing World or what we might perceive as feminist in the times that we live in? Yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of discussion and research and scholarship about where Margaret sits as a feminist or proto-feminist. But you can absolutely do a sort of feminist reading of her work, bearing in mind the context of the time in which she wrote. Margaret creates a world, a society in writing in contrast to the real world in which she's living. Here, women have more freedom and can be placed in positions of power. So take the main protagonist of the story. You've got the authoress, the creator. She creates a world. That's pretty cool. Margaret was very proud of this. And in this sort of world, there's a main sort of actors in it are two intelligent and capable women the empress who was the woman who was transported to this world through the north pole and margaret cavendish she plays with romance almost inverting traditional romantic stories where you have sort of passive vulnerable women throughout the woman transported to the blazing world also takes on roles which are traditionally assumed by men She becomes an absolute ruler a scholar and scientist religious leader barrister military general so she's sort of playing with the capabilities of women if placed in this different kind of society i've mentioned margaret cavendish makes an appearance she actually makes an appearance as a spirit scribe so her body doesn't get transported to this blazing world but her spirit comes and converses with this empress in the world and she's chosen by the empress above male philosophers of the past and present who would scorn and have no patience for her and she's sort of described as a plain and rational writer, which many of her contemporaries might not agree with. And she advises on a range of learned subjects. She becomes a political advisor when no one else wants to do knows what to do. So there are definitely really interesting aspects of this woman-centric text where you create this world of women's agency. And gender and the capabilities of the different sexes is something which Margaret definitely explores in her other work. And in some ways elements of it are contradictory and unresolved but often she sort of expresses a view that women if given the opportunity and in particular for example she talks about this in terms of education are as capable of learning as men so actually in the preface to the sister work of the blazing world observations upon experimental philosophy she writes many of our sex may have as much wit and be capable of learning as well as men but since they want instructions it is not possible they should attain to it. So Margaret has this really interesting view of gender that has been much discussed, and you absolutely can sort of look at the blazing world as almost this proto-feminist discussion and exploration of what women could do. Yes, and the choice of the word blazing is interesting as well, isn't it? She comes into the world with fire and glory. (laughs) Yeah, it seems that way, blazing a trail um, for, for others to follow by the sounds of things. How unusual was it for Margaret to be writing about natural philosophy at this time? And, and when, when we say natural philosophy, what do we mean by that? So natural philosophy was sort of thinking of more sort of the forerunner to sort of science of the time and philosophy as we might understand it today. Margaret Cavendish has sort of held a very important place in the publication of natural philosophy 
by women and in terms of expressing her own natural philosophy. She's regarded as sort of the first, if not one of the first women to be doing so. So many of the topics she wrote about, and bearing in mind natural philosophy in particular, has been considered a domain more traditionally reserved for men. That is not to say that women were not engaging with the subject and more recent scholarship has found a platform for some of these 17th century women who were talking about natural philosophy. But what I think perhaps marks Margaret out was the sheer extent and the expression of her own views and the fact that she published and published under her own name. This was unusual. It was undoubtedly helped by the fact that she had status from 1665. She was a duchess. She had the means to self-publish and the support of her husband, who is said to have underwritten the cost. So in subject, there were some areas where she was quite unusual. And also sometimes in form, she wrote, for example, say orations, so speeches, which would more traditionally be reserved for men. You mentioned the start as you were summarising her life, that she was the first woman to attend a meeting of the Royal Society. Did this cause quite a lot of controversy at the time? In some ways it did and it didn't. Margaret requested to visit and I suppose there was a lot of discussion whether that request should be accepted. There was a vote taken and the diarist Samuel Pepys wrote many were against her visit. I suppose in some ways status helped. She was an aristocratic woman and it was sort of an aristocratic potential patron coming to see the work of the Royal Society. So, yeah, there was a degree of controversy, but there was also a great degree of interest and just fascination in the fact that she was coming and also on the spectacle she created when she arrived at the Royal Society. It was a great performance and many waited to come and see her. And Pepys, again, to go back to him, described what she sort of did. She had a glorious train, so this huge train attached to her dress, sort of a real symbol of aristocratic status, carried by six waiting women. She came in a gilded coach and her outfit may have had some more masculine aspects, such as a cavalier hat or a jusacor, which is a jacket more traditionally worn by men. John Evelyn noted she looked like a cavalier, but she had no beard. And she really played with gender clothing. She does this elsewhere in her works as well. So yes, there was a great deal of anticipation of her coming and there was a great deal of interest in her arrival. And when Margaret did come in and she entered in and met with the society, they showed her sort of some of their famous, more spectacular experiments. And it was noted that actually Margaret didn't comment that much on them. She just said she was full of admiration, perhaps shy. But in her works, Margaret was far from that. And she directly critiqued some of those experiments in The Blazing World, for example. You mentioned that she was a playwright. How many plays did she produce and were these plays also performed? Yes, so she produced two volumes of plays in 1662 and 1668. There are around 20 um, in those volumes. One was a snippet of a play. They were never performed in her lifetime, sadly. Some have been performed now in the more recent age. And her first volume was actually written during the interregnum when, in England, theatrical performance was, in fact, banned. Though her sort of prefatory material suggests not only a great deal of concern about the reception of her plays, if they were to be performed, that kind of she kind of wanted them to be. She sort of wrote instructions of how they should be sort of spoken and used. She kind of hoped for a time when they might be enjoyed. There was a mistake by our friend Pepys again. He thought he saw one of Margaret's plays. 
He did not, in fact. He saw one of William Cavendish. It was a great mistake, but he described it as the most silly thing that ever came upon the stage. And so perhaps Margaret's fears of the reception of her plays were in some ways slightly founded. And kind of like we've talked about already, Margaret liked to play with genre and theme and topic. And her plays include tragedies, comedies and romance and play with those sort of genres. Some have autobiographical elements, for example, the presence where she explores court life. And again, a strong theme of gender comes throughout a lot of her plays. She explores marriage and roles, women's roles in society. For example, in one, she has this fantastic heroine, Lady Victoria, who leads an army of Amazonian women and outshines her general husband. And another the convent of pleasures, Margaret imagines an all-female community of learned women who explore subjects such as marriage. And so again, we see a literary output littered with interesting and strong female characters, even if perhaps the general public had to merely enjoy them in printed form rather than on the stage. And from stage to writing poetry, she did that as well, you mentioned. What kind of topics did she tackle in her poetry? So take, for example, Poems and Fancies. We talked about her first work. This was a really complex collection of poetry with a whole range of themes. A large number of her poems were dedicated to the discussion of atoms. She talked about worlds within worlds, worlds within an earring. She talked about fairies and witches, animal parliaments, a talking oak tree. So her poetry addressed a really vast range of subjects, a lot of which tied in with her developing ideas of natural philosophy. Margaret is today associated with Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire, where she lived with her husband, William Cavendish. Does Bolsover feature in any of her works? It does indeed, and it features in one of her poems. There's a poem entitled A Dialogue Between a Bountiful Knight and a Castle Ruined in War. And this describes Bolsover and the damage caused by parliamentarian troops and sort of, I guess, tries to reclaim a space and a voice in that very turbulent and difficult time and celebrating the efforts of her brother-in-law in regaining Bolsover. You know, it starts, Alas, poor castle, how great is thy change! From thy first form, to me thou dost seem strange. I left thee comely and in perfect health, now thou art withered and decayed in wealth. And Bolsover also features in Blazing World. We've heard that Margaret Cavendish makes an appearance, her soul is transported to the blazing world to commune with the Empress, as a spirit scribe. The Empress and Margaret then sort of astral project back to Margaret's real native world. So the world as we know it. <laughs> and there they discuss government and monarchy and attend the theatre and go to court. And they go and see the Duke of Newcastle at Welbeck and then Bolsover. And Bolsover, again, you see her sort of talking about the civil war in this period she describes it as but a naked house and unclothed of all furniture sort of referring of a lot of that being taken away during the wars and they also see William practicing the arts of menage and swordsmanship and we've talked in previous podcasts about William's love of horses. So some of this is within her poetry and some of this is within the blazing world where Bolsover features. Yes, so the first part is sort of a short poem from Poems and Fancies, which looks at how Bolsover has changed. And in the blazing world, we see this fantastical visitation of William Cavendish. All of Margaret's works then, how are they received in her lifetime, ignoring the play that was actually described as hers when it actually wasn't? 
Well, I think in some ways that <laughs> Samuel Pepys' views there echo some of the others of his contemporaries. During her lifetime, Margaret's works were rarely engaged with in a meaningful way, and only a small number of individuals sort of recognised their merit. And this was not for want of trying. She sent out copies to libraries and prominent individuals in the arts and sciences, but seldom met with a reply. Those who did comment on her works were sort of not actually interested in the content themselves, but more in the fact that this woman had written them, this transgression from gender norms. And also in the eccentricities of Margaret as an author, we've already heard a bit about that sort of spectacle she created around herself. And actually that reception has really dominated even up to the 20th century, where she's had a bit of a revival and a revision. So just to give an example of one of the comments of her, Margaret's contemporary Dorothy Osborne wrote of Poems and Fancies, which we've just been talking about, so Margaret's first publication. She could never be so ridiculous else as to venture at writing a book. And in verse two, and then that her work was 10 times more extravagant than her dress, which was saying something because Margaret liked a bit of flamboyance, and that there are many sober people in Bedlam. You know, the very fact that she would write this work, she must be crazy. And Mary Evelyn, another contemporary, found her manners excessive, thought her full of herself and described her talk as airy, empty, whimsical and rambling as her books, aiming at science, difficulties, high notions, terminating commonly in nonsense, oaths and obscenities. So really, she was not well understood in her time. <laughs> Ladies of the time are expressing opinion there on Margaret's personality. Did her personality affect the way that her literary efforts were received? Yeah, it absolutely did. You know, we've heard that Margaret Cavendish really did rail against convention, both in her life and her works and worked in fields which were traditionally masculine, this sort of would inevitably attract some sort of censure and commentary. And we think also of the kind of spectacle which Margaret created in her sort of presence and in her persona and her personality. And, you know, we saw that at the Royal Society. But I think it is really worth noting the role that Margaret played in her own self-imaging. She didn't want those kind of comments, but she did try and create a very deliberate version of herself for the public. We've heard when she went to court, she was quite shy and bashful, and she sort of repeats this through some of her work. But in public, she had this very particular persona. And her flamboyance attracted a great deal of interest among society as people sought to catch a glimpse of the eccentric Duchess. And Margaret was aware of this, and that her manners and clothing were, quote, beyond what was usual and ordinary. She loved to be singular. She wrote, I endeavour to be as singular as I can, for it argues but a mean nature to imitate others. For my nature is such that I had rather appear worse in singularity than better in mode. She did this in her external appearance. She designed her own clothes. We've heard a little bit about how she played with clothing and gender. And she did this in her written works, which she was desperate to be seen as original and as her own. She had this fear that people would believe they were written by someone else. She also does this visually in her publication. She has these glorious frontispieces where she carefully cultivated through imagery a version of herself as a serious aristocratic and learned writer. And this interest in self-representation and creating this sort of persona is born out of perhaps a wider preoccupation with fame. And she unashamedly wrote in her work of her great ambition and desire to be remembered. She was, quote, ambitious as ever any of my sex was, is or can be. Did she have a uh, a very hands-on way of dealing with other areas of, of her life, with her lands, with her property? Mm -hmm. So in many ways, Margaret creates a picture of herself as a sort of lone, solitary genius. 
But she does engage in other areas of life where circumstances demand. And for example, as you said, the, the Cavendish estates, Margaret would have had a particular interest in Bolsover. It was part of her jointure. So this meant that if William died before her, she'd have a life interest in the property. It would be a sort of grand dower house. And there is evidence that from 1667, Margaret took a real active interest in managing the Cavendish estates and ruffled some feathers in doing so, perhaps, with the household staff. And so you get that sort of sense she could put her mind to anything. She was involved in arranging of tenants and even on untenanted lands had cattle herself. It's hard to reconcile sometimes that sort of pastoral image of Margaret with cattle and managing lands and then in another world in her closets at Welbeck or Bolsover or wherever sitting and penning these grand sort of visions of how the world worked. If we fast forward um, to her later life, Margaret died in 1673. I gather she was about 50 years old at the time. Do we know what she died of? Sadly, I don't have an answer for you on this one. It is is not known what Margaret died of. Mm. Where's Margaret buried? She's buried in Westminster Abbey and her tomb has an absolutely beautiful inscription penned by William. I've sort of mentioned in passing that he was a writer himself. He was a playwright and published works as well. And the latter part of that inscription reads, This Duchess was a wise, witty and learned lady, which her many books do well testify. She was a most virtuous and a loving and careful wife and was with her Lord all the time of his banishment and miseries. And when he came home, never parted from him in his solitary retirements. And we've talked a bit before about, you know, her marriage perhaps wasn't understood or seen as popular at the time but that sort of epitaph suggests you know they really did find this enjoyment and comfort in their marriage together and worked well together as a couple. Yes so she was really ahead of her time and also by hundreds of years really but also ahead of her time in terms of the men that she liked to keep company with. I suppose she must have had a real connection with William. Yes she did and I think William was, as I said, sort of incredibly supportive and he would contribute, for example, sections to her plays or he'd write sort of prefatory material. So they kind of really worked together, Mm. which is kind of wonderful. (laughs) Bolsover Castle, though, which featured in um, Poems and Fancies and in The Blazing World, does it get looked after after her death, after William's death as well? What, What happens to the couple's other lands? Yeah, well, sadly, Margaret and William weren't actually able to have children together. And this does sort of actually loom large, perhaps, in some of her works. She writes um, in one, Condemn me not for making such a coil about my book, Alas, it is my child. And so when William died, Bolsover Castle passed to his son by his first wife, Henry. And actually that marked from then on the sort of period of decay, actually, at Bolsover. In terms of themes that Margaret played with, did she ever have a sense of her own mortality in her writing? Because in modern terms, she didn't live that long. But um, is there any sense of time running out or anything like that in her writing? So, yeah, it's really sad that Margaret died at such a young age. You can only imagine how many more works she would have published if she lived longer. And she absolutely did have this sense of mortality in her own writing. And this is kind of intimately entwined with her interest in fame of being remembered and existing beyond her sort of physical life in the memories of others. And she was preoccupied with being remembered through her actions and her works as an honourable and honest person. And a huge part of this was that being original and intelligent that we've talked about before. 
And in her epistle to her plays never before printed, so that's some of the plays we talked about before, she writes, I regard not so much the present as future ages for which I intend all my books. She wanted posterity to remember her not for, quote, riches, coaches, lackeys, and what state and ceremony could produce her, but for her, quote, worth and merit, her wit and her wise actions. Her works, being the labour of her brain, were far more important than any considerations of where, as she quotes, her dust or bones might remain. And Margaret wanted to be remembered and remembered for the right things. Sort of uncertainty around an afterlife meant that if she was sort of celebrated and famous, she wouldn't be forgotten. And her works and their rereading lent a kind of immortality to her. She was versions of herself captured in the minds of others. And that Mark wrote for future generations has in some ways become true. Since sort of the 1980s and 90s, her works have really been taken far more seriously. And there is a proliferation of scholarship on them now. In recent years, there have been a number of publications and articles and things which talk about Margaret Cavendish and really give her works the serious consideration not afforded to them in her own age. For people who want to find out more about Margaret Cavendish, what could they discover if they visit her former home of Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire? So if you go to Bolsover Castle, we did a project a few years ago, actually, which involved making a suitably fantastical item of clothing, which our volunteers wear and is based around the fashion and interests of Margaret Cavendish. And they can tell you more about her. And if our volunteers aren't there to do it on that day, they're on display at Bolsover. So you can come and discover a bit more and be inspired by not only her clothing, but the environment in which she lived and worked and no doubt wrote after her return at the Restoration in the 1660s. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover the remarkable story of Sophia Duleep Singh, a campaigner for women's votes and the recent recipient of a blue plaque. Between 1909 and 1914, this woman will do anything she can to try and get arrested and embarrass the state. Emmeline Pankhurst is deploying her like, like a weapon of mass destruction wherever she can. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>